And so we continue on, Exodus chapter 30. We're going to begin in verse 11 tonight, where we left off last week. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord, when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is twenty giras, half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from twenty years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel, when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Hmm. You shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, literally for your souls. Father, would you give us insight tonight as we study your words, as we delve into scripture, Lord, open up new things to us, and Father, help us to see you. Help us to see Jesus as we long to see him. We sang, come Lord Jesus, come. And we do pray that prayer. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, come quickly. But we ask that you come tonight. And that by your spirit we can be taught and and learn and understand these things. Father, we trust in you. And we know that as we listen to you, our eyes are open. Give us ears to hear tonight, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, previously, when the Lord invited Israel to give, it was voluntarily. But all of a sudden, he says, no, this is a mandatory giving. You all will give mandatorily. There are some churches that do that. The Mormon church, you have a mandatory tithe if you're a member of the Mormon church. I don't know if you knew that. Um, they actually, I believe, have uh, like little ATM cards that you can run through and just pay your 10%. I was thinking that would be a good idea to put one of those in the back. Just, uh, no, not necessary. But unexpectedly, God is saying, Moses, count the children of Israel, everyone over 20, and here's how you're going to do it. You count by the shekel, or literally by the half shekel. Everyone's going to give half a shekel, then all you have to do is count up all the shekels, and that's how many people you have in Israel. That way you can know the number of the Israelites. Now, listen, because there's something incredibly important to understand about numbering. There are two kinds of numbering in the world. There's man's numbering, and there's God's numbering, and they are very, very different. And I think we need to understand, man's numbering is typically about power and pride. When man wants to number himself, or number his group, or number his people, it's typically about power and pride. Skip over to 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. 1 Chronicles 21. Now David is king at this point. As you're flipping over there, David is king and he has just routed the Philistines. He's doing really well. His army is powerful. It's strong. David is at a good point in his career. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it tells us in verse 1, interestingly, that Satan stood up against Israel. How did he do it? With the Philistine army? With the Ammonites? No, he... Moved David to number Israel. This is David, a man after God's own heart. This is David, the one who, aside from the Bathsheba incident, we would somewhat want to emulate. I mean, this is someone who we would want to be like. Close to the Lord. So close. That he was after God's own heart. This is how God saw David. And yet Satan motivates David 
to do something against Israel. Well, what's that? This must be something awful, something really bad. Verse 2, So David said to Joab and the princes of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring me word that I may know their number. Big deal. He's just doing a head count. How important is this? How could this be bad? Joab said, and Joab knew, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are, but my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why does my lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Something's not right with this idea of numbering. Joab is seeing something in David's request. Something wrong. Verse 4, Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David, and all Israel were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab and bugged him, made him sick. God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. Verse 8, David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Verse 9, the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, and saying, Go and speak to David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. That's a great idea for punishments, by the way, hon. I think we ought to do this with the kids. You have three choices, okay? And they go from bad to worse, and you kids can pick them. This is what the Lord's doing. He says, go and speak to David. So Gad came to David, verse 11, and said to him, Thus says the Lord, take for yourself either three years of famine, nice, or three months to be swept away before your foes, uh, while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord even pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel now therefore consider what answer I shall return to him who sent me and David said to Gad and now his heart is starting to come back around he says I am in great distress please let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercies are very great in other words God you decide the punishment but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell. Because David numbered the people. We read something like this and we think, man, that's, that's awfully intense. Seemingly a little extreme. God, you just killed 70,000 people of Israel because the king wanted to do a head count? What's the problem here? The problem, my friends, is power and pride. It's man's numbering. There was one reason why David wanted to know the number of all of his armies, the number of all the men of Israel. One reason and one reason alone, to know how great he had become. To count himself among the great kings of the earth. To be able to say, wow, I've done myself good. And there's only one great in all of Israel, and that is the Lord God. Proverbs 16.18 tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And it's amazing to see how David progressed. And maybe you felt this way in your spiritual life, in your Christian life. David started out with nothing but faith and five stones taking on a giant Philistine and slaying him. You remember the story David and Goliath. 
Now as king, he has just defeated the entire Philistine army, but he doesn't have enough faith just to trust that God is God, and that is why he won. No, David wanted to know how powerful he was. He was much more powerful as a runt with a fighting faith than as a ruler with a fighting force. Remember that as you grow in the Lord. It's much better to be a runt with a fighting faith. Much better to have trust in the Lord than to have a mass of people around you or great knowledge or great strength. Better to have faith in the Lord than to think that you have the strength to stand in this world because the moment we begin to look at our strength and take our eyes off of the Lord, we are in danger of falling as David fell. Of feeling really good about our spirituality in a prideful way. Man's numbering. It's about power and pride. But back to David's census, you might think looking at this, it doesn't seem fair. It was David's sin. Why not plague David? Why did 70,000 in Israel fall? Think about that, gang. 70,000 of Israel, then all of the wives and children who would be fatherless. A great pain in all of Israel because of this sin. And we say, I, I don't think that's fair. I'm not sure that, that's right. David was the only one that sinned. And listen, there's no such thing as sin in a vacuum. None of our sin affects only us. We like to think that it does. I'm going to make this choice for me and no one else. This isn't going to impact or or affect anyone else. It's just me. It's just my sin. And I'm going to sin all by myself here. The reality is no sin is sin in a vacuum. One sin affects far more people than we can ever imagine it affecting. You think Adam and Eve, when they tasted the fruit, had any idea? If they had had the opportunity to plan ahead and realize, well, okay, if we bite into this thing, not only do we make ourselves completely mortal, death will enter our lives, we will eventually die, but the entire world and all of humanity, all of history, will have to now deal with sin and death because we couldn't say no to the fruit. I don't sin in the vacuum. And the choices and the decisions that I make against the Lord will affect other people. I have no idea how many, but they always affect others, not just us. And we see that in David's situation. Now, this prideful numbering issue has some very real implications for us as a church. For us here at the bridge, or for any church. And it's interesting, I'm often asked the question, how many people were there on Sunday? Or, what was the attendance like on Wednesday night? And isn't it true that we tend to measure the success of a meeting by the number of people who show up? Man, if we're packing out the barn on a Sunday morning, it was a good day. But if 30 people showed up, Christmas Day is going to fall on a Sunday this year. Did you know that? I'm not even sure what we're going to do about that one. Christmas Day. Christmas morning. So we're going to have our Christmas Eve service, and we're going to get back up and have our Christmas morning service, which I think is kind of cool. But if there's only 20 people here, does that make it less effective, less powerful, less meaningful? We count, and we count, and we count. Why do we want to know how many people have showed up on a Sunday? How many people are there on Wednesday night? Why is that important to us? What purpose does numbering really serve the church? I've been in churches that had the little board. Maybe you've seen them. And they, and they put up on the little board in the front, they put the song numbers for the day. And at the bottom, they give the amount that was given in the offering the week before and the number of people who are attending. Why? What is the point of that? 
And what's really funny is it's usually in churches that have hit about 100 and they never grow beyond that. They just stay right there. So it's like 100, 101, 110 when we had a big week, you know, 98. What is the purpose of all this numbering? You want to really be able to measure your own heart on this. Think about how it feels to say 25 people showed up versus 250. To tell friends and family members, yeah, Sunday morning we had 10 people there. (laughs) It was great. As opposed to, we couldn't even count. It was so full. How about this? One person got saved today. One person got saved. It was amazing. It was wonderful. You know what the best thing was about Sunday morning for me? Watching Danny go into the pond. One guy. No one else got baptized on Sunday. No one else made that commitment. But it sure was cool to watch. To be a part of. That is what made Sunday great. Luke 15, 7 says, I tell you, Jesus speaking, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous purchase persons who need no repentance. He's saying, hey, I am, I am more thrilled. There's more partying going on in heaven when one sinner comes to the Lord than when 99 church people sit there and sing songs. That's how you measure the success of a Sunday morning. That's how you measure the growth of a church. When lives are being changed and people are being touched. And if 99 righteous church people show up on a Sunday, it's great. But if one person is saved, all heaven breaks loose in celebration. Which brings us to the godly numbering system and the mandatory offering. While man's numbering system is often about power and pride, God's numbering system... God's numbering system is for two reasons that I understand, ministry and service. God numbers for ministry and service. What do you mean? Interesting. Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, Even the hairs on your head are numbered. Even the hairs on your head. I mean, see, it's getting easier for God to count my hairs all the time, but for, for some of you, that's a lot of work to keep track of all the hairs on your head. Why are all my hairs numbered? Because God is keeping track of me, and He will not lose one of His own. Luke 15, verse 4, going back in the story of a verse we just read, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go out after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders and he rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. He says, rejoice with me. I found my sheep, which was lost. And I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven, again, over one sinner who repents, than over 99 righteous persons persons who need no repentance. The Lord knows he's got a hundred, but one has wandered off. And so the Lord's heart is to go after the one. He loves the 99s, but he also knows the 99 are good. They're there. They're cared for. They're loved. He's going after the one. That's ministry. The Lord is numbering for the sake of ministry, for the sake of keeping track of people, loving people, showing compassion and care for people. And that, my friends, is a really good reason to count on a Sunday morning. I'm not talking about counting numbers wise, but counting heads, looking around, seeing who's here. Is there somebody missing? Well, why aren't they here? Are they out of town? Are they sick? Is there a problem? Are they in a crisis? That is worth numbering for. For ministry. Keeping track. Hoping and desiring and praying that no one falls through the cracks. If someone's not here, you follow up and you say, Hey, are you alright? Well, yeah, Well, we actually are going to this other church over here now. Terrific. Just wanted to know that you were okay. I got an email this last week from a missing fellowshipper 
Someone who had been coming to the bridge for quite a while and, and then suddenly had not been coming. And I, I thought about this person and, and, and just sent off and, and said, hey, wondering how everything was going. And I hate doing that because honestly when a pastor does that, everybody kind of goes, oh, here he comes. The pastor's, you know, it's the pastor call. He's doing it because he's a little worried about numbers right now. No. God put this one person on my heart particularly. And so I called us to see, hey, are you okay? Well, he emailed me back and said, the timing is very interesting. He said, because we actually went and tried out another church because there was no youth ministry going on and, and we really wanted youth ministry for our kids. And I said, well, <laughs> let me tell you what's going on. You've got to meet Scott. Strange as he is, he's really doing a good job getting the kids together. And, and the timing was, was interesting with that. But it's, it's ministry. It's going after. It's looking for somebody. It's counting and realizing someone's not there who would normally be there. It's ministry, and God's numbering is always about ministry and service. God also numbers, as in this tabernacle tax, or we can call it the tabernacle tax, it's a little easier, for service. Why does God declare the tabernacle tax? Look at verse 16 again. You shall take the atonement money, atonement money, Notice that, underline that if you, if you want to, the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting so that it will be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Again, the word yourselves is literally your souls. Now I read that over and over and I thought, this is odd to me. It almost sounds as though this half shekel, well, is it about atonement? Is that what's going on here? It's interesting, the half shekel continued annually all the way down to Jesus' day. Flip over to Matthew 17. From Matthew chapter 17, we see a story, an interesting little story with, with Jesus and Peter taking place that has to do with the temple tax, the tabernacle tax that God instituted way back. Here, here we go, Matthew 17, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax, that's the temple tax, came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And what's really funny about this is it says, Then he came into the house, and Jesus spoke to him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And Peter said, From strangers. And then Jesus said, Then the sons are exempt. See, at this point, Jesus hadn't paid the temple tax. Peter said yes, because embarrassed as he was, of course my master paid the temple tax. Did he? Jesus, did you pay the temple tax? Because they're asking out there. And so Jesus, understanding where he's coming from, he, he tells them, look, kings of earth collect customs and poll tax. Do their sons pay or do the strangers pay? And of course he says the strangers, and Jesus says, then the sons are exempt. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, I'm the son of God. I don't need to pay the temple tax. But the, the atonement money, it's not for me. But Jesus, always doing everything he asked us to do, says, however, verse 27, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. It's hilarious. You go fishing, Peter. See, Peter's floundering right now. He's... Well, he's, he's fishing for some help. He's asking Jesus to give him a hand here. And, and Jesus says, okay, listen, I'll, I'll let you off the hook. Okay? You go open up that fish's mouth. And Frank's going, please, let us off the hook. You go get that tax out of the fish's mouth. And pay our temple tax. Pay the shekel. Well, the temple tax was half a shekel. So he's paying both for Peter and for himself. And Peter got a good deal that day. 
Okay, back to Exodus 30, we have to ask this question. Wait a minute. The service part is fine, but I don't understand the rest of this verse, this idea of paying a shekel or a half shekel for my soul. That's what it says. Give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for your souls. Is this implying, as some have tried to say through the ages, that salvation can be bought? That you can pay some amount of money and get atonement by paying the money. Now you would say, well that's ridiculous, it doesn't add up with scripture. And I'd say you're right, but the church hasn't always thought so. In fact, back in the Middle, middle Ages, there was an interesting little practice. For the time in history where people could pay a certain amount of money and light a candle and pray a prayer and get someone out of purgatory who had already died. Now the Bible, by the way, doesn't even discuss purgatory. There's no such thing in the biblical record of a place where you go to pay penance for your sins beyond what Jesus paid on the cross. Jesus paid it once and for all. It was completely sufficient. And there's nothing you and I can do to add to that. But in the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, it was called indulgences. If you go to Europe today, you see the grand cathedrals, the beautiful artwork, the structures, the gold, the stained glass. It's awesome. It's beautiful. And if you experience these things, understand that a lot of the money that went to pay for those came from indulgences. People saying, Uncle Ed died and he wasn't in the Lord. But if I pay this indulgence, if I pay this tax, so to speak, I can buy him out of purgatory. Pay some money, pray a prayer, light a candle, save a soul. Is that what we're talking about here? It doesn't sound right. Is salvation for sale? My friends, again, you cannot buy atonement. So what's the deal with the tabernacle? tax? Looking at it again, he says that it may be a, what's the word there, memorial. Pay it as a memorial. As a memorial. Now we've seen this with several other things. But let me answer this question. Can you buy salvation with another question? Can an animal sacrifice truly atone for sin? Yes or no? No. And yet they did it, didn't they? For the atonement of sin. But it can't. We understand that it can't. Well, let me ask you this. Can the keeping of the law save anybody? No. Uh, unless you could keep it perfectly, which no one can, so it's a moot point. The keeping of the law can't save you. Sacrificing animals can't atone. So why did they do it? Because as with this half shekel, it's all pictures of atonement. It points to redemption. And here's what's interesting. You may remember this, that silver is a picture of redemption in the Bible. This half shekel was silver. They would pay this silver and it was a picture of redemption. The silver shekel states absolutely that the giver must be redeemed. But Peter comes along and in 1 Peter 1.18 says, You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, now follow this through a little bit here. The silver shekel. God says that he wanted them to give it for a memorial, but also he says to give it for the service of the tent of meeting. What do you mean the service of the tent of meeting? That silver from those shekels would have been melted down and used for something specific. And if you draw back to the tabernacle as we saw how it was all put together, there was something in the tabernacle that was silver. Most everything was gold. But there was something that was silver. It was the sockets that held up the boards that held the tabernacle together. Sockets. 
And we talked about this, how the boards in the tabernacle were pictures of people, of you and of me. Wood, speaking of humanity, set in sockets of silver, speaking of redemption, held up by redemption. And we are connected, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we're connected as a living house, like a tabernacle. And so it all ties in together. Everybody paid the same temple tax, a picture of redemption. It was not redemption itself, but it was a picture of redemption. Let me give you two modern day examples in the church. Baptism. Baptism is not salvation in and of itself. It is a picture of being washed. It is an outward symbol of an inward work that God does. Communion. When we take communion on Sunday morning, it is a picture. It is a symbol of the body and blood of Christ. Not the body and blood literally, but a picture of it. To point us to Jesus. To show us that our salvation was purchased by Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Paul said, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You've been paid for But not by silver, not by the half-shekel temple tax. You have been paid for by the blood of Christ. And so man's numbering, God's numbering. My heart is, my hope is that we can be about God's numbering. It is so easy to slip into man's numbering. But do me a favor, if anybody ever asks, if anybody ever says to you, how many people were there? Just give them this answer. Why do you want to know? Why is it important? Why does that matter? The Lord was there. And where two or three are gathered together, that's when church really happens. Exodus chapter 30, verse 17. Moving on, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze, and its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put some water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it when they enter the tent of meeting. They shall wash with water, so that they will not die. And when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and their feet, so that they will not die, and it shall be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants, throughout their generations. Now I want to ask you to flip over to John chapter 13. Just hold there for just a second. John chapter 13. We've already talked about the spiritual washings. We've actually already talked about the bronze laver that that was put up there. And it was for the ceremonial washings of the priest. We see now that every time the priest came into the tabernacle, they were to wash their hands and their feet before entering. However, from last week or a couple of weeks back, we saw in the ceremonial washings of the priest that when they became priests, when they were at first consecrated, their entire bodies were washed. When the high priest, when Aaron came to the tabernacle, Moses washed him head to foot, completely washing him. But then after that, perpetually, every time he entered the tabernacle, he had to wash his hands and his feet. And we saw how that first washing of the high priest was kind of like our first washing, our spiritual consecration portrayed in baptism. And our ongoing spiritual sanctification, well, that's a different thing. That's the washing of hands and feet. And speaking of this... The Bible often equates the word with water. And we said this washing of hands and feet, this ongoing washing that happens in our Christian life, it's done by the word, through the word. The word of God, as we study together, Psalm 119.9, How can a young man keep his way pure or literally cleansed 
by keeping it according to your word. And again, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, Christ cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word. There is a purifying, cleansing effect of Bible study. It happens. God gets a hold of your heart and begins to wash. But it's like washing hands and feet. It's not going back and having the entire washing again. That happened. When the Holy Spirit came, that happened. You were cleansed by Him completely head to toe. But I want to comment on something else that's interesting here. Notice that once the priest was consecrated again after the full body wash, he only needed to wash hands and feet. Well, look in John 13. Beginning in verse 5. It tells us that Jesus poured water into a basin. This is on the night, Thursday night before he was betrayed. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What you do not realize now, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. So Jesus said, Hey, if I do not wash you, you have no part. With me, Simon Peter, I'm going to add this, quickly thought this through, but didn't quickly think it through long enough, and said, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. I want the whole package. And Jesus said, He who has saved needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And all of you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And there's an interesting thing, I've never seen this here before. What Jesus is doing here is, is he's getting into Peter's heart. Peter says, hey, wait a minute. I understand now what you're doing. This is like the high priest, right? This washing that you're doing, man, don't just wash my feet. Don't just do like, like they would do before going in the tabernacle. But wash all of me. I want to be completely cleansed by you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, that's already happened. You don't need that. You've already been washed. All you need is your feet. Because they kind of stink, Peter. We just need to go to the feet. This is all you need right now. And Peter is doing what we so typically do as followers of Jesus. I, I think all people typically do this. We want to make a ceremony out of it. We want to take something simple and beautiful and cleansing and turn it into a big production. It's like graduation ceremonies. And I've just got to share a word on this just for a moment. And I'm not talking about high school graduation because, you know, after 12, 12 years, right? After 12 years, you ought to have a ceremony. But kindergartners, what have they done? I'd like to give this diploma to little Jeffrey because he only drew on the wall four times this year. Preschoolers, it's unbelievable. Sixth graders, I have gone through now with my kid, with Corey, who's our oldest. I have now gone through preschool graduation at two different preschools, by the way. Kindergarten, sixth grade, and now eighth grade last night, which, by the way, was a great ceremony. It was very cool, and I'm not knocking it, but it's what we do. We have to find ways in our world to celebrate because we don't have the big picture, and I'm talking in the secular world here. Because we don't have a heaven to look forward to because mankind is thinking just about the here and now. We've got to find ways to celebrate. And we want to make ceremony out of everything. And Peter here is with Jesus and he's completely misunderstanding what Jesus is doing. Gang, what he missed is it wasn't about ceremony. It was about service. Jesus wasn't doing some big major spiritual thing to say, hey, I'm now going to anoint you and you and be in thou. He's just saying, I want to show you what this is about. Serving each other. I'm washing your feet, Peter, because they're dirty. And you ought to wash each other's feet in the same way I've washed yours. It's interesting. Churches have gotten into foot washing as this major thing. 
I've known of churches where it was a huge special ceremony and oh, we're going to do this make us and, and it misses the point it's just about service every time you do the littlest thing for another Christian you're washing their feet but let's not make ceremony out of things it's about service it's, it's the look what I've done mentality I've accomplished something in my life and I need recognition for it which is the reason why I can't stand the Academy Awards I can't say why don't they get enough attention that they need a whole entire show about themselves look at what we've done how wonderful how just great we are we acted in movies anyway I'm sorry we went off a little bit there but gang don't let this attitude of ceremony infiltrate your service or your ministry to the Lord don't be looking for opportunities to be to be lifted up you know what the Bible says about this? Listen to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. It's the wrong reason. Jesus was alone in the upper room with his closest friends when he washed their feet. He was not trying to make a big, huge deal out of it. He was saying, Serve each other. That's it. He could have done it in the temple, in front of everybody. I am now going to anoint my followers. But he just serves them quietly. He goes on in Matthew 6 and says, If you practice your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. This verse has struck me. When you give support, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. And I hope some of those Hollywood types hold fast to their Oscars because that's it. That's <laughs> all you're going to get. Hope you enjoyed it. But Jesus says, you know, I'm looking down here on the earth right now and I'm seeing people in quiet service washing people's feet and no one even knows what's going on and I am going to exalt them to a high place in heaven that's the kind of person that I am going to honor and who's going to receive a great reward well verse 22 back to Exodus chapter 30 verse 22 moving on moreover the Lord spoke to Moses saying take also for yourself the finest of spices of flowing myrrh 500 shekels and of fragrant cinnamon, half as much, about 250. And of fragrant cane, 250. And of cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And of olive oil, a hen. A hen. Just a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture. The work of a perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. And with it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, and all its utensils, and the laver and its stand. And you shall also consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, and they may minister as priests to me. And you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix any like it, or whoever puts any of it on a layman's Actually, that word there is a stranger. Shall be cut off 
from his people. The holy oil of anointing. According to the Bible Knowledge Commentary, this amounts to 12.5 pounds of myrrh, 6.5 pounds of cinnamon, 6.5 pounds of cane, 12.5 pounds of cassia, which is a fragrant bark of a tree, and about 4 quarts of olive oil. And when mixed together, these would make a fragrant blend. Now, these ingredients and what they point to are fascinating. To stop for a moment and take time and look at each one of these ingredients and what they actually say, why they're chosen, why the Lord has them in here, is a fascinating study. And by the way, it's a fascinating study of the Holy Spirit and how He works in our lives. We use the, the term every now and then in the church, anointing. Well, this sheds light on how the Spirit anoints us in amazing ways. Have you noticed that there's something interesting about God's Spirit in Scripture? Something unique about the Holy Spirit. He's only portrayed in pictures and in types. You never have a direct description of the Holy Spirit in in how He looks. You have a description of His character, what He does. But you never actually see the Holy Spirit... You might say, well, wait a minute, what about at Jesus' baptism? I would say, you're right, as a type. He descends like a dove. Well, what about in the book of Revelation when he's talked about there? Well, he is as a type, like the seven-candled lampstand. Or here, as in the oil of anointing, anointing oil is a type, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit to help us understand him better. And in the Bible, his spirit, God's spirit, always remains invisible and always goes unnamed. We have God the Father, we have the name, at least we think, we can't pronounce it exactly right, but Jehovah or Yahweh. We have that tetragrammaton when Moses says back in Exodus chapter 3, Who am I talking to? I am that I am. So we have kind of a name for God. In fact, we have several names given to God in the Old Testament. We have names for Jesus. But the Holy Spirit is just the Spirit. Why is that? I'm going to read three verses to let you hear from Jesus on this. John 14, verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Now, helper is not a name. It's a description. He goes on, he says, it's the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him, invisible, or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. But the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. What does the Holy Spirit do? He reminds us what Jesus said. Interesting. Jesus goes on in John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth, again a description, not a title, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. What does the Holy Spirit do? He tells us about Jesus. He points us to Jesus. Never to himself. Interesting. Jesus goes on in John 16, 13 and says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Uh, He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Jesus is saying something very clear about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will always point you to Jesus and never to himself. And if you want to understand more about this, you're going to have to wait because we're going to talk about it a week from Sunday. Okay, let's move on. Exodus chapter 30, verse 34. And I'm not kidding, there's just too much there, and it is a whole lesson in itself. So we'll come back to it. 
Sunday we can't because we have to finish the Ten Commandments. Verse 34. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices, Sakte and Onita and Galbanum, spices with pure frankincense. There shall be an equal part of each. And with it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And you shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony. The testimony is what? What's the testimony? The Ark. That's right. The testimony is the Ark. It's another name for the Ark of the Covenant. You shall beat some of it very fine and shall put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. He says, take these spices, this Sacte, Onica, and Galbanum, and mix together this incense this beautiful, sweet-smelling, fragrant incense. But don't ever make any like it for yourselves. This is holy. This is for me. This is for the service of the tabernacle. Now I want to stop and just think about this for a moment before we end tonight. Several years ago, a Southern California company came up with a great idea for a new perfume. The perfume literally was called Scent from the Stars. Not Scent, S-E-N-T, but S-C-E-N-T. Scent from the Stars. And the idea was this. It was to take sweat from certain movie stars, I kid you not, and mix it into a fragrance and market it. Arnold Schwarzenegger was on, on, on that. He was one of the ones who was going to uh, be involved. Clint Eastwood was another one. And I'm sure this one, this person would make everybody run right out and buy some Roseanne Barr. Yeah, that's what I want. I want to purchase some Roseanne Barr sweat, please. Unbelievable. But you know what's interesting? The whole reason they did it was, again, going back to the whole Hollywood thing and the stars and how impressive they are. Wow, they're stars. Maybe I get a little sweat on them. I, too, can be a star. And it's ridiculous. And yet, we have a mentality before the Lord that is similar. What are you talking about? Sometimes we really think our sweat will impress the Lord. We really think by digging in, by perspiring for God, we can impress Him in some way. And yet He's not interested in our sweat. In fact, the Lord is pretty clear that human sweat stinks to Him. He's apparently disgusted by the smell of human sweat. What are you talking about? Listen to this. Ezekiel 44 verse 18. Talking about the priests moving in and out of the temple. And it says, Linen turbans shall be on their heads. And linen undergarments shall be on their loins. They shall not gird themselves with anything which makes them sweat. This is in the Bible. God is saying, I don't want perspiring priests. I don't want sweaty servants. I don't want people coming into my temple and smelling. So make sure they wear cool linen, not like heavy wool, or something that's going to make them perspire, because that's going to mess up the fragrance. I don't know if the sweaty smell mixed with like the perfume, the, the, the frankincense would just be a bad thing. Probably would. When I was in college... I'll share this with you for a moment. I had a guy who lived across the dorm from me, and he was a practical joker par excellence. And we had done some things to him that weren't so good. Our, our doors in our dorm room opened in to our bedrooms, which makes sense. And we took a, one of those big rubber-made trash cans and filled it about three-quarters full of water and leaned it against his door at about 1 o'clock in the morning one night. 
The next morning when he got up to go to class and opened his door, <laughs> he got a flood. Well, he wasn't happy about that. And I'm not sharing that as a good thing. It was a bad, bad thing. Chris, when you go up to college, don't do that. But he got us back, and he got us back good. We were going for Christmas vacation. And we got gone for three weeks. And the day that we left, he went to our dorm director and said, Hey, Rick and Chris, Chris, my roommate, Rick and Chris uh, left already, and, and I've got some books in their room that I need for Christmas break. He was bearing false witness big time. And he's going to pay for that someday. I know he will. He got the key to our room, went into our room, got up into the heater above our door, put a piece of liver from our cafeteria in the heater, turned it on full blast, locked up my door, and left for three weeks of Christmas vacation. I came back from Christmas vacation and opened the door, and I have never in my life before or since run into a wall of smell. It was so bad, I kid you not, it was like running into like a rubber wall. It was like a, oh, oh, and it was horrible. And it literally took us three weeks to get the smell out of the room. And we were burning incense and spraying perfume and lighting scented candles every night. This is in Abilene, Texas, in the wintertime. It was like 20 degrees. Our windows wide open and our doors open and we're in there wearing coats and just it just was terrible and there's this smell and we're using all this sweet stuff and it just made it worse you know how that is with sometimes well, I won't get into restroom stuff but when you spray it it's just it doesn't work it doesn't you, you go in there and all you know is someone was trying to hide something that shouldn't happen at all okay this is I think a little taste of what God's talking about in the sanctuary I don't want you bringing your sweat into my sanctuary I don't want you bringing your perspiration, your hard work, and everything that you think is so important. Your holy sweat. He doesn't want your sweat. God wants our stillness. He wants our peace. He wants us in quiet. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, Paul says, The servant of the Lord must not strive. We know in the Psalms, the psalmist says, cease striving. God says, cease striving and know that I am God. And notice that God keeps repeating over and over and over. And you'll see this in the scriptures. He keeps coming back to this principle of Sabbath. Just in the next chapter, we'll see it next week, Exodus 31 verse 13. He says, as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying you shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Not you are the one who worked at it by your sweat, but I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And I would much rather bear the fragrance of the Lord than the fragrance of my own labor, my own sweat. Three things real quickly before we go to jot down about this fragrance. Number one, the Father likes His fragrance to be sweet. He likes it to be sweet. Verse 34, he describes some spices here, stacte, anica, galbanum, and mixes them with pure frankincense, an equal part of each. And this was the mixture, and it was beautiful and fragrant. And apparently, smelled very, very, very sweet. But what's interesting about this is three of these wonderfully sweet-smelling spices were not indigenous to Israel. Asakte, Galbanum, Onaka, these didn't come from Israel. They came from faraway places, distant countries. They had to be imported just to make this, just to put this scent together for the temple in Israel. I wonder why, Lord, why didn't you just pick some fragrances, some things right there that they could use, something handy? 
But God wants them to go from a, to a distant point, point or place and import it to Israel. And I think there's something to this that says we're to be sweet before the Lord. It's not going to come from our own land. It's not going to come from inside of us. It's not going to emanate from our work. Paul said in Romans 7.18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. And in verse 24 of Romans 7, you know this verse, he said, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? There are few things that smell worse than a decaying human body, and this is how Paul describes himself. Stinking in his sin before the Lord, who will deliver me? My flesh, my body does not smell good, and if I'm going to smell good before the Lord, it's not going to come from here. I'm going to have to have it imported from somewhere else. Well, how does that work? And any sweet spiritual smell that is on our persons must come from another place. It comes from the Holy Spirit. And think about this. What is it that the Spirit produces in us? He produces fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus says it in John 15, 16, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. What fruit? We've read the verse, but listen again. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I was thinking when I typed this verse in this week, we've read this verse probably 150, 200 times since we started the bridge. It just keeps coming up. And yet this is a list, and I want to hand this to you tonight and remind you, if you want to know if someone is walking in the Lord... If you want to know that you are smelling sweet before the Lord, there's your list. There's the fruit. And that fruit smells good to God. Are we walking in the Spirit of God? Are we walking by His sweet fruit or by our own sweaty force? Is it my strength or His sweetness? Ever been in an apple orchard, especially when they're just blossoming? Or maybe at harvest time, just at the apple picking time where that scent is so strong in the air. We grew up in Southern California, Shell and I did, and back when we were kids, there was nothing between where we grew up, Mission Viejo, and L.A. It was just basically orange groves. And I recall, as vividly as a child, driving down the freeway out into the boonies where we lived, past just rows upon rows upon rows of orange trees, and it smelled so good. The scent just filled the entire air, and the Lord is smelling for a sweet fragrance. This fragrance of the fruit of the Spirit. And the Spirit is the only one who can import this from a distant place into my life. It doesn't come from here, it comes from there. He imports it, or literally He imparts it, to me. The Father likes His fragrance to be sweet. The Father also, number two, likes His fragrance to be salted. This is interesting. With it you shall make an incense, verse 35, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And I wonder what does this exactly mean for us today? Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, Paul says, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Listen, the biblical definition for salty speech is a little different than the world's definition today. You know, if you say, oh, that guy's a little salty, well, we know what you're saying. He curses a lot or he has some, you know, pretty rough sailor talk. That's, you know, he's an old salt and we know what that means. But salty speech, according to the Bible, is a good thing. 
It speaks of preserving grace. Paul again says, let your speech be with grace as though seasoned with salt. The salt that was so important in the Middle East at the time. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.13, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I remember the first time I salted a piece of cantaloupe. It was completely on accident. I had always salted apples back growing up. The taste, and my mouth starts to water when I think about it. My mom would cut the apples and then she'd salt them for me. And, oh, it tasted so good. I just loved it. Well, I was in high school and a bunch of my friends were hanging out. And we cut up a cantaloupe and put it on the table. And we had some other stuff. It was just a massive feeding frenzy, basically. And some of the salt spilled over onto my cantaloupe. And I went, oh. And then I thought, hey, salted apples. Salty cantaloupe. And I took a bite. And I've never had a piece of cantaloupe since without salt. Because you know if you've tried it, it makes it sweeter. The salt draws that sweetness out. It makes it even better. And it's the same with the fruit of the Spirit. What are you talking about? What does it mean to salt my speech? It means if I'm given the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit imports or imparts this fruit to me. It's in me now. Now as I salt my speech with grace, it even makes the smell sweeter. As I speak... Words of grace. What's that? Ephesians 4.15 Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up into all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. We talked about this on Sunday. The ninth commandment says, You shall not bear false witness. Don't twist the truth, but testify to the truth. Tell the truth. We are to be truth tellers, but we are to be truth tellers who speak in love. Two quick examples. Jesus. I, I love the story. He's with the rich young man. He has disciples around, and the guy comes up to him and says, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And, and Jesus says, oh, well, you need to keep the commandments. And he begins to list them. He lists everyone except, I believe, the, the command not to covet. And the young man says, yeah, I've done all of these. I've done these all my life. I've kept them all. And Jesus said, great. Now what I want you to do is sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. This is awesome. Okay, think about this. He had said the same thing to the twelve apostles. He is offering this young man an opportunity to be one of the insiders with him. To follow him. To be with him. To be his student. For him to be his rabbi. What a wonderful gift. But the young man, the Bible tells us, went away sad. Because he was very wealthy. But there's a line in here that is really easy to miss if you're just trying to read through the story. It's Mark chapter 10 verse 21. When the young man says, what should I do? I've kept all these commandments. The Bible says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Other translations say, he looked at him in love. You see, the young man, I kept the commandments. Jesus says, well, let me tell you something. He just might as well have said, I love you. So I've got to tell you the truth. You've got to get rid of what you've got in your life. I love you too much not to tell you the truth. What was the result of Jesus' loving statement of truth? The young man walked away. Now, one thing we don't have in Scripture is what happened ultimately. It is possible this young man came after Jesus later. It's entirely likely. We just don't know. But I'll tell you what. The opportunity for him to follow Jesus was much better because Jesus spoke the truth and did it lovingly than if Jesus had tried to sideswipe the truth just to get the guy to follow him. Or maybe get the guy to follow him and bring him all of his riches because it would, you know, benefit the ministry. 
And Jesus spoke the truth in love. He did the same thing with the Samaritan woman. You know the story in John chapter 4. It's interesting that he's talking with her. And she says, he says, hey, go get your husband and bring her here. And she says, oh, you know what? I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus, speaking the truth in love, says, you're right, you don't. Actually, you've had five. <laughs> and the one you're living with right now is not your husband. Now, when you read that at face value, just looking at the print, you might go, Ooh, oh, what are you doing, Jesus? What Jesus is doing is freeing her from hiding anything. He tells her the truth. Hey, I know what's going on in your life. You don't have to play games with me. You don't have to hide it. Let me make this easy for you. I know exactly where you're at right now. And knowing that, I still want to have a glass of water with you and continue this conversation. Speaking the truth in love. He doesn't tell her to go home. By the way, interesting. What would you do? I, I was thinking, what I would do with this as a pastor, if I was sitting talking with a woman and she said, yeah, well, I'm, I'm living with a guy, my initial reaction as a pastor is, well, if you want to get close to the Lord, you need to throw the bum out. Because <laughs> he doesn't love you enough, obviously, to, to marry you, so you need to go home and take care of that and then come back and we'll talk some more. I've known churches that will do this. A couple comes to a pastor and say, hey, we're living together, we want to get married. And the pastor says, well, <laughs> you got to stop living together and then we'll talk about getting you married later. My attitude, and I could be wrong in this, but my attitude has always been, get them married and stop the sin. When can we get you married? How about you don't go home tonight? Let's just do it right now. Right now. I got my Bible and we can just do it. Take care of it. So it's not an issue. Jesus never once in this conversation with the woman tells her to go home and throw him out. He doesn't say anything about it. He speaks the truth. He illuminates it. And then what does he do? He says, oh, and by the way, I'm the Messiah. I'm your Savior. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't judge her. He just tells her who he is, and that changes everything. Speaking the truth in love. That is salted speech. That's how Jesus was. What a perfect example of this. And the Father likes its fragrance sweet. He likes it salted. How can I salt the fragrance of the Holy Spirit in my life? By speaking the truth in love. Don't be afraid of telling the truth to people around you. You know, a lot of us have friends, family, we talk about this all the time, who do not believe in Jesus. Why are we so afraid just to talk to them about Jesus? Not in a judgmental way. Not in a, listen, I've got to tell you this because you're going to burn in hell. Do you know how much God loves you? you? Do you realize that my whole concern for you is because I love you not even a tenth as much as He does? And He won't let you off of my mind and He won't let you out of my heart. I've got to tell you about Him because this is the truth. And the truth will free you. Speaking the truth in love, it salts the very fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Well, verse 36, it's interesting, goes on and says, You shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. And it's interesting to me that the fragrance was in front of the testimony, that is the Ark of the Covenant, bearing the truth of God's glory. And so as you walk in the fruit of the Spirit, that sweet fruit, that sweet scent that the Father loves, also walk with salted speech, not afraid to tell the truth, not afraid to speak the truth, but speaking it gracefully and with love. Well, number three, the Father likes His fragrance to be sacred. His fragrance is sweet, His fragrance is salted, and finally, He likes His fragrance to be sacred. Verse 37 says, The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for you yourselves. It shall be holy 
for you, or to you, and for the Lord. The incense was sacred. We're told a few verses up. It's pure. It's holy. It's set apart for a single purpose. One purpose. This is not to be a perfume that is smelled throughout Israel. This is a perfume for one reason, to please the Father. It's not even so that the inner inner, uh, area of the tabernacle, the holiest place, smells good to the high priest. It's not for the high priest. It's for the Father. It's to please Him. It's because it's what He wants. It is specifically for Him to please the Father. And I have a question, last question for tonight. Who am I living to please? Am I setting out to please man in the things that I do or the things that I say? Or am I about pleasing the Father? And I promise you, if you're only about pleasing the Father, well, two things will happen. You will please some people, and you will offend many others. The last verse for tonight is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I encourage you to turn there and, and read along. Follow me on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In verse 14. Holiness, sacredness before the Lord, that sweet smell of purity, while smelling sweet to the Father, again, does not always smell sweet in the world, does it? Well, Paul describes why. 2 Corinthians 2.14, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Who who manifests this? Where does it come from? It comes from the Father, not from us. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Who can bear this information? What He's saying is to some we smell like death. We have the fragrance, the the sweet smell of the Holy Spirit, the salted sweetness of the fruit of the Spirit is speaking the truth in love. And that truth will offend some people. And simply by living with love and joy and peace and patience and on down the list of the spiritual fruits, simply by living lives that way, you will offend people. You will bother people. You're going to buzz people. Some are going to go, man, that stinks. I don't like the way this person smells. It's too much. It's just too much perfume. I don't like it. Paul says, that's the reality, gang. For some, you're the aroma of life. They're going to be around you and go, man, whatever you're wearing, can I get some of that? That is a nice perfume. Where'd you pick that up? I had it imported, you know. Where did I get that? But to others, it's the smell of death. Now, you may have heard this before, but I'll share it for those of you who haven't heard it. In biblical times, especially when an army would conquer another army, what they would do often is take the perfumes and the fragrances that were of that culture, and they would pour it all over themselves as they would triumphantly march back into the city from which they had come. And all the people would be cheering and shouting and, and you know, saying, Hooray and welcome back to all the soldiers and the warriors who had conquered these other peoples. And as you walked along in this great triumphal procession, it would smell. The fragrance would be all over the place. And you would smell the smell of victory. But all those who were being led, bound by the hands, the conquered enemy also smelled the exact same smell, but to them it was the smell of death. 
Paul is making a description that is very vivid here to his readers that they would understand. And you and I can now see that this wonderful smell of the fruit of the Spirit in my life, the salted fruit that is on me, the sacred fruit that God gives me, it may smell great in here. We may walk in and hug each other and see each other and talk to each other and go, man, this is great. It smells so good in here this morning or this evening. But you can go and be around other people and they smell the exact same smell that we were sharing here and they go, Ugh, that smells like death. That's a good thing, by the way. Because that smell of death is something else the Holy Spirit is doing. Conviction. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said when He comes, when the Spirit comes, which He's here, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, I love how Paul ends this teaching. He says, To one were the aroma of death to death, and the other the aroma from life to life, and who is adequate for these things? Certainly no human being is adequate for these things, but the Spirit of Christ in me, sweet, salted, and sacred. This is the fragrance that the Lord loves. Well, that concludes chapter 30. I want to share one last thing with you. This incense burner that I had up here, and I kind of let it die down because when I got it going, I think I put too much on it. It was just like smoking. And you guys came in after we opened up all the doors, but it was a little out of control. It's pretty serious. I thought we were going to have to call a fire department or something. But this, this sweet smell, it's really interesting. And I, I actually saw a loan from Gail and Margie um, last week when they saw where we were going with this and that this was coming up. They said, hey, we've got something that might be an interesting object lesson. It's interesting because it, it does, the altar of incense didn't look exactly like this, but the altar of incense was completely gold. But it did have four horns, just like this. So you get a picture of, of what the horns look like and the crown around it, and then within it, would, the incense could be burned. The coals would be in there, and they would take a censer and hold the incense over it, and it would produce that sweet aroma. The salt, by the way, just another piece of trivia, um, made it smoke. When you put salt, added that in with the frankincense, they salted it to, to make it smoke and to, to bring the scent out even more. So it doesn't just work with cantaloupe, it also works with incense. But what's interesting about this, and they shared this with me on Sunday, and I, I, just, I thought, what a great, a great example. Um, you guys got this in Bahrain, right? So it's from the Middle East. So this is authentic. We've been burning authentic Middle East frankincense. So you can go home and tell people about this. But what's interesting about it is, as a social custom, and, and hospitality is huge in the Middle East, as a social custom, when you had spent an evening with friends in their home, first of all, they gave you, and I, I'm kind of quoting from Gail's emails, they gave you everything. Even if they had very little to give, the guests always got the most, or are always given the best that there is to give. But at the end of the evening, it's customary to take a little incense burner like this one and to light the incense. And then to pass it around. Not, not to smoke or inhale, but you know, we're not going back to the 60s here. To pass it around, and they would take the incense and literally pull it in to get on their clothes. And to get the smell all around them. And then they'd pass it to the next person, and pass it to the next person, and on around. And when you left that place of fellowship for that night, you took with you the scent of the evening. You took with you the scent of fellowship. You, you would be, you know, I don't know, walking home or riding home or whatever, and you could smell, and that smell, and we all know how powerful, how powerful smell is as a reminder. And that smell, then every time you would smell it after that, you'd think of that fellowship with those friends. That's very cool. 
But I wanted to share with, with you tonight just to say this. When we walk out of here, every time we worship together, every time we share in the Word together, every time we fellowship, we share the sweet scent of the Holy Spirit. And when we leave this place, that scent goes with us. And we carry it and we bear it. And we know this because we see each other from time to time and our immediate reaction is, Hey, I know you. We worship together. Last Sunday was great. We love this time because we are covered with the scent of the Spirit. And I encourage you to take that scent with you as you leave tonight. But let's pray first. Father, thank you so much again for your words. And for the opportunity we have just to immerse ourselves in it and to learn from it. Father, I, I just I'm constantly blown away by how much there is in Scripture and how rich it is for us. It really is Scripture like it's, uh, is it itself like a sweet incense. And I pray, Lord, tonight that as we have passed around Your Word, that we would that we would draw in the free, the sweet fragrance of it, that wonderful sweet smell, and take it with us. And walk with us tonight, Father, and this week, and remind us, Lord, that we have. In us, the gift of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. We walk with these sweet-smelling fruits. And help us, Father, to do what we might. Not not to sweat, work hard, toil, but, but, Father, to salt the fruit you've given us through speaking the truth in love. And may we always hold these things sacred and holy and pure and seek to live lives that are this way before you. In Jesus' name, amen.